Welcome back to the Plowcast, where we'll continue discussing all things bright and beautiful. Actually, we've been reflecting on the amazing pieces that appeared in the most recent Plow magazine, our nature issue. And we've been talking to a number of our contributors. I'm Peter Momsen, editor of the Plow Quarterly. And I'm Susanna Black, senior editor at Plow. And if you haven't yet, you should really catch up on the first five episodes in the series. It's been a great series. In this episode of the Plowcast, we'll be answering questions from you, our listeners, and we'll be reflecting on what we learned and what we're taking away after five Plowcasts, where we began to crack open the Book of Nature. So, listener questions, Susanna. We have a whole bunch, and I think we should start with Darwin. The question from Darwin that came to us over Twitter, and... uh, let me see if I can pull it up here, because Darwin is kind of getting at some pretty deep stuff, and if we get to it too late, we might not be able to answer this question. Darwin says, I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the Ichneumonidae with the express intention of their feeding within the loving bodies of caterpillars, or that a cat should play with mice. So, the first question is, what are Ichneumonidae? What are Ichneumonidae? Pneumonity, Pete. Well, I looked it up. And they are parasitic wasps. Uh, and they remind me, actually, of the parasitic wasps I see right around us right now. Not, because not like in this room. Not in this room, but right outside this room. Um, which always seemed to me like the prime example of natural evil. Because they come out when the cicadas come out. The wasps follow the cicadas. Do you want to know what happens with... The what, wasps, what? the cicada killer wasps. I probably don't, but I think you're going to tell me. I am. I am. So this is kind of like an all-natural horror show that you can watch, and it's free. And you'll see the cicadas happily buzzing around, and we all know, you know, cicadas returning after all that time. Like, they've spent years for this big moment. And out they come, and the cicada killer wasps are ready for them. And Ashley... Uh, attach themselves to them, to their backs, while the cicadas are in flight. And um, they have a big old stinger and get it in there and steer the cicada in flight down to some grassy bank where they have done a, made a little hole ready for the now somewhat paralyzed cicada, drag it in and lay their eggs in the still live cicada and the little larvae grow in the still live cicada and then um, come out and do this all over again. These wasps actually come out on the same rhythm as the cicadas do. And it always just struck me as there's no more horrible animal that I can even think of than a cicada killer. They're also really, really painful. If you ever have the misfortune of being stung by one, it's excruciating. So they they don't only sting cicadas, they will also deign to sting human beings. It's really hard to get them to sting human beings because they're all about the cicadas, but if you, like, bother them or sit on one or something, then they will actually get you to. Yeah, that's pretty traumatizing. So Darwin's asking, what about that? Or cats playing with mice. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, actually, the cat playing with mice piece is answered by one of the readings in our issue by the kind of crazy British poet Christopher Smart. In his... Ode to his cat Jeffrey, who he says is the servant of the living God, and to Christopher Smart, who wrote this poem apparently while imprisoned in Bedlam, or at least committed there. Um, he believed that the cat plays with a mouse because one out of seven mice escape while the cat is still playing with them, and it's kind of to him a sign of God's providence and mercy that the cat. Kind of like plays with the mouse and lets some of them get away. Gives it a shot. Gives it a shot. Sort of gentlemanly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Do you buy that though? Um, I think that it would be, I guess the way I would think about it is it's difficult to think about a cat being fully a cat without playing with mice in a kind of hideous way. Um, I used to, you know, one of my, when I was... Growing up, I had cats who would bring not so much mice, but they would bring the entrails of shrews that they had caught as little gifts to us, and they would put them in our shoes. Um, so we would have, like, shrew guts and shoes. And it was very sweet. Like, it was clearly they were giving us the special part. And it was they, love. They loved yeah. us. Yeah. And um, it's hard to think about because that's clearly, you know, kind of a post-fall feel to that. Like, there's not... And yet, this is part of the nature of the animals. And so... Um, 
I kind of think this might be one of those giant questions that will remain unanswered. Like, yeah, although I think we can get into it and not just totally pass over it yeah. because we actually did address this in some of the previous episodes of this podcast. And we talked about the fact. So the first I want to go back to something that Ross Douthat, the New York mm-hmm. Times columnist, said in our first episode, which is why is it that it was only in recent decades or the last couple of centuries that, you know, these natural evils bother people so much because right. people know knew about things like this actually a lot better than we did yeah. um, back when, you know, folks worked with animals a lot more. So there's also something in the way we're set up that we see things like this mm-hmm. and it kind of throws us into a tizzy in a way that it didn't our forebearers. And why is it that they could see, you know, predation and parasites and, you know, maggots and all these things and still see the book of nature as being written by a loving and omnipotent, omnipotent God. Yeah, it's it. We sort of think that it's a new problem. And like Darwin, Darwin, not the letter writer Darwin, but Darwin, Darwin um, apparently had a huge like when he sort of had this perception of how evolution happened, it seemed incredibly like that itself was a threat to his faith and eventually kind of overturned it um, because it, it seemed to him like, how could God be this wasteful? Like, how could this be the way that um, that the current forms of creatures had evolved, like through this much suffering and this much loss? But it's not actually more, infor- like he didn't have more information about that than people in previous ages. No, and it seems to me that actually the crisis has less to do with some brand new insights of Darwin and evolution or modern science and a lot more to just do with, you know, how our emotional and sentimental lives are set up. And that's what's really being overturned when we encounter nature. It's not because, uh, as uh, Richard Dawkins would have it, perhaps, um, that new discoveries mm-hmm. sort of disprove that there's a loving God who made all things. Um, it's more that we like to have everything pretty tightly in boxes. And it's not just the natural world either. You know, history itself, the whole Old Testament is full of pretty difficult ways that God, you know, moved in the history of life and of humankind. Um, And so, yeah, we're not going to answer this quickly here when we're answering listener questions, except only to say that this really kind of points back to some of those fundamental questions about the fall and of redemption that Paul, for instance, talks about in uh, his letter to the Romans in the chapter mm-hmm. eight, um, or where he says about how great is the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God, and uh, speaking about how the redemption of the Jewish people would happen. These are all kind of related questions of things that are really, really difficult in life, in biology and history. Um, and the early Christians, I think, would say, well, and that's precisely the point why Jesus came. Yeah. And I mean, so the huge questions of, I think the technical term is theodicy, like making sense of evil, including natural evil, is in fact the topic, as we talked about, I think when Ross was on, of Job, which is probably the earliest written book of the Bible. And the whole sort of approach of the author of Job is terrible things happen and God is still in control. And we don't quite know how that that sorts itself out, but it's not like we've only recently noticed this. If we can like look at the story of the flood and find God's goodness within that, there's not new information that we have that's going to shake us more. And, you know, when I talked about, you know, the cicada kidders with, with my kids, um, because, it, you know, it can't help making an impression on you when you see this kind of thing. Um, to remind them that our reaction of horror and disgust really says more about us than it does about the cicada killers and that we they are probably playing a crucial role in the ecosystem that we live in right here. Um, and that ecosystem requires, you know, both death and life. Uh, and to, to recognize that there is a kind of higher beauty in this um, rather than sort of anthropomorphizing, you know, how bad these wasps are. 
That's true, but there's also the sort of aspect that is, I, I, is, it, is it in Romans where Paul talks about creation groaning um, right. to, to sort of see our um, glorification as the children of in God? In bondage to in decay. In bondage to decay. And so there is this sense that like creation itself is not, it's not just that we got screwed up in the fall. There is some sense of creation itself somehow not being what it should be. And like, I've thought about that even in terms of like entropy, like is entropy a a sign of that? Obviously, there's a lot of questions that that raises. Like, did this happen retroactively after humans fell that like this all retroactively worked on the, the world? But I don't know. I figure like those questions of, time and causality are probably beyond my pay grade and definitely beyond yours because you don't get paid. Yeah, definitely well beyond my pay grade as a mere magazine writer and editor. But there are two things I'd like to leave listeners just so it doesn't sound like we're totally taking a pass on this. And one is I think these natural evils should remind us to be humble. Um, They remind us that there is a greater plan to the universe that we don't need to fit into our preconceived mm-hmm. sort of emotional map. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one is that Christians have always known that these are there and that they have always taken them as pointers to the whole grand story of creation and fall and redemption mm-hmm. and what the universe is actually about. And in that way, we can actually be thankful for these things. And that's actually what I ended up talking about with my kids in regarding to, to these wasps is that when the kingdom of God comes on earth, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, you know, these are the types of things that God is going to deal with and make new. And we actually don't need to know a lot more than that. As infuriating as that is to us know everything moderns, right? Well... Next question. Next question. What do we got? I think you had a question about uh, the virtual and nature. So is is virtual, the online world, does that have any nature? Uh, what was the listener question? Could you so, read it? Sure. It was, uh, can there be a nature of an online place? Does Twitter have a nature? Um, what can we say? Like, how does nature relate to the virtual, essentially? And there are a couple of different kind of ways that... So is Twitter a natural world? Can we read the the book of nature in in Twitter? Twitter. Yeah. Um, God help us. (laughs) I mean, so I kind of think we can in certain ways. It's obviously a man-made thing. It is, you know, human-made. But there are a lot of things that are human-made. Like this table is human-made, but we can like learn something about, you know, nature from what we talked about cities as kind of essentially natural environments um, to humans. Now, it might be that Twitter is like, like what it shows us is a particularly ugly side of human nature and draws particularly ugly things out of us. Um, I think that can definitely be the case. Um, It's also kind of, I think it reflects, I think it's sort of like it's, like most things that humans make, it's a kind of reflection of our nature back onto us. And, um, you know, I'm actually quite pro-Twitter myself. I think it sort of caters to our social nature in ways that can be good as long as we don't let ourselves be uh, taken over by it. But I do think that, like, a lot of the problems that we run into with Twitter have to do with the fact that it is a very unnatural thing. way of communicating because it's so disembodied because we can't look into each other's faces when we're tweeting at each other it's very that for that reason it's easy to become kind of worse (laughs) towards each other i think each technology imposes a kind of discipline Mm -hmm. on how we act to each other if we're to act lovingly Mm -hmm. right and this again isn't really new um you know, back in the day, if you're writing a letter to your wife mm-hmm. uh, and you're a sailor and she won't get the letter nine months from now, there's probably a whole bunch of things you don't tell her that will just worry her mm-hmm. pointlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, she can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just, you know, been reading, you know, obviously Patrick O'Brien again. Um, yes. <laughs> so um, channeling him. And let's take email, right? I mean, I know... 
in the context of living in a Christian community like the Bruderhof, email, and this is not meant in any Luddite way because we rely on it as much as anybody else to get our work done, but it's really, really bad um, for relationships that are under strain. And it's become almost a rule in our community. I mean, it's not written down anywhere, but people will kind of push you on it. Mm-hmm. Is if you're feeling any type of animosity towards mm-hmm. somebody, like the last thing you should do is write them an email. Yeah. Like you pick up the phone, you figure out a way to meet if you have to Zoom or whatever. So it's not like get away from technology. Mm-hmm. But there's something about email mm-hmm. that removes all the emotional sensitivity and nuance and empathy out of a conversation and lo- allows it to escalate very yeah. easily. And I think Twitter does that then Times in spade. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the phenomenon of the Twitter beef and and Meltdown May, as we have just seen, come to a spectacular close, um, kind of points to that. So what does that have to do with nature? I mean... I mean, it reflects human nature. I think it reflects human nature. I think that, like, basically because we are creatures who have a nature and then we also have you know the traditional way of putting this is like a second nature we have this sort of culture that is part of we are naturally culture making creatures twitter is a part of the culture that we have made and it for better or worse like reflects it enables us to be more ourselves in certain ways both good and bad and you know i'm sure if dolphins were using twitter actually dolphins are kind of jerks also yeah they can be real jerks You know, adding to that, there's one more aspect, and that is that human beings do have a nature which is a bodily nature where we really do best when we're talking face-to-face using our voices. Mm -hmm. And that as useful and awesome as these various tools are to make new friends and have conversations with people that you wouldn't otherwise meet, Mm -hmm. uh, they have huge limitations that we need to learn basically to recognize. And if we're trying to be a decent human being, discipline ourselves not to kind of like feed into the potential for yeah. hurting people with them. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we've been talking about over the course of the pandemic was, I don't know, I've, I've had this worry that like everyone's going to get so used to Zooming that, and they're going to like realize that it's in fact a lot cheaper to Zoom than to like fly places and have conferences and like have beers together. And I think that we had decided that we at Plow are going to push quite strongly against that tendency and we are going to continue to insist on hanging out and being embodied um it's actually worth being inconvenienced for each other yeah um that's not a bad thing nope and it's also not really bad you know i'm going to new york tomorrow to to meet someone a friend there um with you susanna and even though it's kind of a waste of time to sit in a train you could say and go down there Mm -hmm. and come back up again um, to me, that's just so much more worthwhile than doing a phone call. And finally, we can. So we have another question, and this has, relates to this beautiful article by our colleague, fellow plow editor Maureen Swinger, uh, called The Forest is My Classroom, I believe. Yeah. Um, and it recounts her time as a second grader, as a member of a difficult-to-educate group, uh, who a master educator basically took out of the classroom and brought into the woods and told them that was their classroom up in these piney woods, I think they were called. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, what happened then? Maureen had a wonderful second grade year, and it was very difficult, and she learned a lot, and she did not become a feral child. No. <clears throat> so the question I believe uh, this listener sent to us, which I will just paraphrase, mm-hmm was why have a classroom at all? Why not just let kids go full feral? Mm -hmm. Let them go in the woods. Um, Let's do the Rousseau thing, right? Mm -hmm. Back to nature. And yet there's, the the questioner continued, uh, in our minds, sort of this Lord of the Flies fear that if we let kids go back to nature, it'll all just turn out horribly and Mm -hmm. dark. So uh, there's a couple things to unpack there, and I, you know, I think there's kind of two different scenarios, um, or I don't know, a bunch of different scenarios. And one is we can talk about like kids who are actually kind of 
feral children for real like kids who are lost and there are, there have been a couple of cases of kids who are literally raised by wolves romulus and remus in reality there have been a, a number of these cases where kids have actually been raised by wolves um or the equivalent where they just have starting from a very young age have had no contact with other human beings and they don't turn out so well they are not they do not turn into in fact noble savages they do not turn into you know um they don't end up speaking the language of Eden, which is something that I think Frederick the Great thought might happen and did a little experiment on a kid, which didn't turn out that great. Um, they turn out, I mean, they're human beings. They're, they're, you know, made in God's image. They are, but they are not full human beings in some sense. Like they don't have language. They pass through the stage where you can acquire language. Um, and it, they find it virtually impossible to learn language afterwards, even if they're, you know, rescued. They don't, there's, there's, it seems that their kind of affect is flat. They don't have the full range of emotions, or at least they don't express them. They're just, they're not, it's natural for us to be in culture. It's natural for us to be brought up in families, and it's even natural for us to wear clothes in a weird kind of way. We are these creatures whose nature is to have culture. And um, so I guess that's one aspect of it. But there is another aspect kind of looking to the Lord of the Flies scenario that I think you found about. Right. Well, I mean, this story struck me. uh, I read it first in the pandemic, and then I read it again uh, just recently, back in April. uh, The real true story of the Lord of the Flies, right? Um, Actually, the Lord of the Flies, of course, was written by William Golding in 1955. But 11 years later, there's a true story of six young teenage boys who were shipwrecked for 15 months on an island. Um, I think they set out from the island of Tonga and were actually taking a fishing vessel on a a joyride um, and got shipwrecked. And there they stayed until they were rescued by uh, Peter Warner, I believe a a British naval officer, um, who just died this year. Uh, And so this is all in his obituary. He found them. And uh, you saw this story mm-hmm. too. I mean, it was the opposite of the Lord of the Flies. Rather than descending to the depths of depravity, they did exactly what you were talking about, Susanna. They built a human society. They made badminton courts. And they shared out, uh, you know, the duties and work. And they had a, a way of maintaining discipline and order. Um, if somebody acted out, they was a judgment of their peers. And I think there was, you know, various fairly nonviolent consequences, like kind of sitting out uh-huh. under a tree while the others did something fun. <laughs> they had this, it also sounded like they just sort of had customs that they developed um, that were ways to lower the temperature on, on bad tempers. Like they would walk to the other side of the island and like stay there until they had cooled off. One of the th- first things they did when they were shipwrecked and they recognized what had happened was the boys got together and made a solemn promise to each other not to quarrel, Mm -hmm. uh, which was really, really sweet. Now, there was interviews in the articles I read, and we'll drop links, um, with some of the boys who were asked, well, didn't you miss 15 years of school, uh, 15 months of school? And he said, well, you know, I think I actually learned a lot more out there in nature, Um, just how to get along with other people and lots of practical skills, too. The other interesting thing about that is that these are not, you know, this is not the um, sort of Tom Hanks movie scenario where he ends up talking to a you know, disinflated volleyball. Part of what it seems to me enabled these kids to stay, to stay sane and to actually kind of even have a weirdly good experience was the fact that they were with each other. There was like a human community going on here. And as soon as there are a couple of human beings together, um, as soon as you're not alone, that's when kind of culture really begins to kick in, I think. So should I just drop my three kids off on an island and let them raise themselves far from the evil influence of 21st century society? I mean, Manhattan's an island. This is true. (laughs) Um, I do have friends who did a version of this in a way that I thought was really unwise. And they were kind of homeschooling, back-to-the-land types Mm -hmm. um, whose kids were just a tiny bit feral. Um, They actually, in order to evade the laws regarding homeschooling in Germany, um, moved to countries in Eastern Europe and kind of went around in a kind of moving caravan with their oxen. Um, And I always kind of felt bad 
for the kids because unlike the Tongan kids, they were just with their parents all day. Yeah. And I, I'm a big believer in schools. I, I realize, you know, there's people like Ivan Illich who believe that school is a kind of factory that oppresses mm-hmm. kids. But the thing is, it's actually really natural for kids to be with their peer group and mm-hmm. for there to be older mentors who teach them how to, things to do. And mm-hmm. once you put those things together, you have a school. So I kind of suspect that the Tongan boys had stayed there like another 15 months. Maybe yeah. their memories not have been yeah. so great. I mean, the other sort of, this kind of ties a little bit back into the technology question. So I used to have this like weird worry. Well, one of my weird worries was that like wearing shoes was kind of making me into like a slightly less than like fully thriving human being. This is, like, you wanted I, to go the barefoot route. I wanted to go the barefoot route. I thought that it would be like, it was just better in some way. But then connected to that was I was worried that I was like a super obsessive reader when I was a kid. I obviously still am. Um, and I was worried that like the mere fact of learning to read and spending so much time reading was like warping me and making me like less of a natural human. And obviously Plato talks about this. Like Plato talks about the um, you know the sort of badness of everyone learning to read because then they're losing their ability to uh, remember like written language is kind of like a suspect thing. And one of the many weird parts of becoming a Christian was I kind of figured out that it is actually, again, natural for humans to do this very unnatural thing of communicating in symbols on pages, like reading and by extension, you know, schoolroom learning of various kinds, even though it seems very artificial, is... It, you know, it's natural for us to be artificial in a weird way. It's natural, again, for us to have culture. Um, so I don't know. I I would go for a balance. I would go for, like, reading in a schoolroom in the morning and then, you know, getting chased out and running around the woods in the afternoon. And in reality, I think that's probably what Maureen did yeah. because she is now an editor and clearly learned how to read at some point. <laughs> well, here's another really interesting one. Um that just came in today online from one of our readers. And this has to do with um, the book of nature, the book of scripture, and specifically, why does Plow quote from anything but scripture? It says, when Plow quotes from a text that is extra biblical, it carries the implication of endorsement. Where in scripture does it actually say that Jesus came to this world to help God fight Satan? That must be a reference to some of the, one of the things in the issue. I can't I think can't of what it quite is. I can't remember. Um, evolutionary theory can easily be manipulated just to hustle someone's agenda. Just quote scripture. So then we had, you know, we read this and we were like, we had this, you know, cr- moment of crisis. Why, why do we quote anything but scripture? Why do, why do we write anything? Why do we need Why anything? does anybody write why anything? Why does anybody write anything? This is actually... A question that I suspect the Puritans asked themselves too. Yeah. Uh, why would you ever read anything, let alone write anything, that mm-hmm. wasn't just the good book? Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, for me, there's a bunch of different answers. I'm sorry to do this, but I have to at least once an episode. Um, C.S. Lewis kind of talked about, like... I thought you were going to save your C.S. Lewis for later. No, but no, well, he's coming like, out now I have, already. I have plenty. Like yeah. I, I okay. have several. Like I don't know. I've got like several C.S. Lewis chits, so I'm cashing in one of them. Um, he talked about like he kind of struggled with this too. Like why why read um, anything? And he's like basically because you're gonna read something, and you better read something good. Like you better. It's better to read good books than bad books because no matter what, you're going to read something. I think that's what the Puritans probably eventually came to as well. I mean, it's sort of like Tertullian asking the early church father, Tertullian asking what has Athens to do with Jerusalem. Yeah. And yet, in his own writings, making clear that he's yeah. spent lots of time reading Latin pagan authors who taught him his wonderful Latin style. Yeah, and I mean, like, the, it's again, comes down to the question of, like, you'll often have people, Christians, say, like, it's wrong to do philosophy. Like philosophy is deceptive. They they'll quote um, I forget one of the pastoral epistles. And first of all, the, I think it what it comes down to is that it's impossible not to do philosophy. Like you you either are aware that you're doing philosophy or you do philosophy without being aware of it. And I I guess I actually think that there's a a richer answer than this. And the richer answer is we write and we quote things other than scripture because 
writing is part of the subcreation that we do. Writing is part of the creation mandate. It's part of creating culture, um, which is one of the things that God instructed us to do. Like, you know, garden, publish magazines. I right. Yeah, I That's right in there in Genesis. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the invisible ink in my Bible. Yeah. <laughs> do you have the next question, Susanna? I do. Um, if UFOs existed, would it impact your faith? This is getting back to the very extreme. People really love the UFOs <laughs> now, don't they? I have spent And I feel like we're almost playing into like the military industrial complex's desire to use the UFO story to increase the US defense budget, just even by talking about UFOs yeah, anymore we are on this podcast. Entirely part of the PSYOP at this point. I think so. I wish we were getting like more swag from them though. I know. <laughs> um UFOs. This is where I thought you were saving your C.S. Lewis for because, of course, like his entire uh, space trilogy is one long answer to if UFOs existed, would they affect our faith? And how does it kind of fit in with, Mm -hmm. you know, traditional Christian ideas of of how the universe and creation work? Yeah. And I mean... I think one of the things to think about is that it's only really recently that we've that we have this idea that sort of Christians have this idea or not even sort of people who are Christian adjacent have this idea that like the way it works is there's God and then there's human beings. And those are the only two kinds of rational creatures, um, the only two kinds of or God is obviously not a creature. Those are the only two um, kinds of persons. And traditionally, Christianity has had. A huge amount of room for lots of different kinds of persons, um, angels and demons and arguably other sorts of creatures as well, um, who are, you know, who are persons who have some kind of reason. And I don't know. I mean, I think like as Ross was talking about, um, like I would obviously be freaked out if aliens turned out to be real. It would not challenge the bedrock of my faith. Um, I wouldn't necessarily think I would not necessarily take it at face value that they were aliens from space. They might be something else that were presenting themselves or that we understood as they're being aliens from space, whatever that would mean. Um, yeah, I would have a lot of questions. One of the things that I, yeah, but I wouldn't, I, I don't think it would sort of, it is not part of my, it's not part of the Nicene Creed that only humans are rational creatures. And, Okay, this is getting very extra biblical, uh-huh. but I think there is a sense that springs from the Nicene Creed that God is the creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, mm-hmm. and that it seems almost incredible that God would create this vast universe so infinitely larger than our planet, mm-hmm. and that there would only be living creatures in one tiny microscopic part of it. Mm-hmm. and that there must be sort of living something Mm -hmm. out there um, just seems in line with a God who created so much life here on earth. And just the sort of sense of plenitude, the sense of sort of fullness. And that was, I mean, one of Aquinas's sort of descriptions of angels was like, it's fitting that there be lots and lots of ranks of angels in between God and, and humans, because like, God just fills stuff up. He he goes over the top. He when there are, when there seems to be a spot for there to be a creature, he puts a creature there. Right. So there's this superabundance of yeah. life. And in our issue, we included some wonderful artwork from this Aberdeen bestiary. Did you see this? This medieval bestiary. Uh, it's called "The Glory of the Creatures." Is the is the piece that includes this artwork? And in that bestiary. And the other medieval bestiaries, there's not only the real animals, but they also populate it with all kinds of imagined animals. Um, not quite aliens, but they were, you know, they were quite confident that the universe was full of just wonderful and marvelous and strange things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did so, I think, out of the sense that, you know, God is a creator, creation is wonderful and more marvelous than we can imagine. So, UFOs. Fine, no problem. Um, we have more questions, and then we need to talk, Susanna, as we wrap up this podcast. We should do one final question, and then we'll turn to the last section where we always talk sort of what did we learn? How did we change our mind over the course of these yeah. uh, six episodes? 
Final question, though, first. Final question. Um, this is a kind of a huge meta question, but what do we mean when we say nature? So we could talk about, I, I think that this question was getting at like, so you can contrast nature with culture. You can contrast nature with the supernatural. And then you can contrast nature, which is just creation, with God. So it's just God and then everything else is nature. So does it make sense to talk about I, this is, I don't know, the, the aspect of this question that really interests me is, does it make sense to talk about the supernatural? Like, mm-hmm. is that is that a category that we find in scripture? Is that the way that we should think about things like angels? Is that the way that we should think about, um, I don't know, like the human soul mm-hmm. versus the human body, which is in some sense natural? Like, is, like does that, and I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. Yeah, I really feel like I'm getting out of my depth, but I will say that I think emphasizing a distinction between the supernatural and the natural is actually super unhelpful to modern Christians. Yeah. Because with that, we're kind of importing doubt into our faith mm-hmm. um, and kind of creating a boundary between things that have to do with science and things that have to do with God. Uh, the supernatural is where you know, God and all the spooky stuff is and the natural world is stuff that we really ought to listen, you know, to somebody with enough credentials from a a science program talking about. And so it seems to me Mm -hmm. that what's really important, at least right now, is to think of God and his creation and that creation, including everything that he has made. uh, And then the distinction is not between natural and supernatural, but between things that can be measured and be the subject of scientific inquiry and perhaps things that are beyond that. And that is is a boundary that Mm -hmm. is actually pretty porous. If you look Mm -hmm. at history, like Mm -hmm. electricity used to not be something that science could study several centuries ago. Magnetism was a strange sort of, semi-supernatural property and now we understand it as something that you know obeys certain physical laws even now dark energy and dark matter which supposedly make up 95 percent of our universe are dark only because they're illegible to the modern scientific you know apparatus and, and the tools we have so to simply draw that line based on you know what scientists can measure, and then there's everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't even do justice to what scientists themselves tell us about what the universe is like. Yeah, I mean the other sort of aspect to this is that there are definitely parts of reality that can't be. This is going to sound strange, but can't be measured in the way that science wants to look at things, and those are, numbers are one mm-hmm. of those things. Like you can't you can't like look at or do a scientific experiment on or point to in the material world you know, the number four, you can point to four separate things, but like there's a sense in which like if you're looking at numbers and if you're looking at the way that um, mathematics works, like at a, at a structural level, you're not, you're not doing something that's like science. You're not doing something that's like measuring uh, or prodding at things in the material world. And yet clearly we're talking about an aspect of reality. So Again, there are a lot of different things like that that are basically either immaterial or not subject to measurement in the way that we um, sort of think is respectable, and yet they're part of reality. Well, I think we're going to sound like amateur versions of Plato if we go on this too much farther, except that it's actually really useful and practical to remind ourselves that nature creation, reality, whatever you want to call it, just has layers upon layers. And that there are, as one of my favorite pop science books tells us, um, we have no idea uh, about about much of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And any honest scientist will tell you the same. Well, let's turn to the second half of this podcast, and it won't be as long because the listener questions are the funnest part. But I think it is always worth kind of wrapping up mm-hmm. and looking back over the, all the things we've discussed. Um, we've talked about, you know, a wide range of things over the last few podcasts. Mm-hmm. The Book of Nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about natural law. Mm-hmm. 
we talked with Sorab Amari mm-hmm. about his new book and mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Leah Labresco about dependency and sort of the fragility built into uh, our nature, our mm-hmm. createdness. Mm-hmm. So there's just a few things. We've talked about place uh, with Gracie Olmsted mm-hmm. and the meaning of nature and a sort of sense of place in the world. And Ian Marcus Corbin's beautiful um, essay, The Abyss of Beauty, on mm-hmm. the experience of nature as having a meaning, just mm-hmm. kind of invading us and taking over. So what what of this, Susanna, has kind of made you think differently about nature? When you walk outside, are you going to, are you too going to experience, uh, sort of experience like uh, Vaclav Havel did? <laughs> I've certainly... Um, I think your editorial and then Ian's piece, which were very much a pair in my mind, did make me sort of want to be more attentive and made me sort of um, even just excited about the possibility of uh, reading God in the natural world. And it's, you know, I'm there are a couple of things that I'm looking forward to doing this summer Um one of which is going camping um, out in my family's place in Connecticut. And that is um, something that I've always enjoyed. And it's also, there's a way in which that kind of gets to the sense of um, the legibility of nature when it's when it's in the context of a place that you know very well, um, as we talked about with Gracie, um, has there's another layer of readability there. Like when you have family history in a place, there, it's not just that the, the natural world is speaking to you about God, it's that your own memories and your parents' memories and your grandparents' memories that are kind of like dug into that soil are a way that um, you feel like you, you're almost reading your own family history in a place. Um, that's been my experience anyway. So, so as people are increasingly mobile and don't have that sense of deep rootedness in, in a place, um, you're talking about going back to a place that you're probably your family has camped in before, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, what could you recommend to our listeners about ways to kind of cultivate that when there may not even be a place anywhere on the planet that you have deep family uh, roots in? Well, I mean, one thing that Gracie did was, even though she doesn't live this is kind of a cop-out, but like, even if you've moved away from your family place, try and find out where your family used to live. Um, if you've moved away from your, your town, go back. Um, not necessarily to stay, but as a way of kind of honoring, um, honoring the fact of your family's history in a place. Like it's, it, there's a sense in which you know, not everybody needs to stay where they were born. Not everybody needs to um, do, you know, stay for many generations in the same place. But if you move, um, there is a kind of gravity to that. There's a sense of like, it, it took a while for you to build up, say, five generations in one place, and now you're moving. And that is a bit like cutting down an old growth forest or a, an old tree. It's a significant yeah. thing. It's yeah. not necessarily bad, but it's significant. Yeah, it's yeah. momentous. Um, so, f- like, find your roots. Go find out where your family used to live. And, of course, Gracie's book starts with her going through a cemetery, right? right. And that's what I've been thinking about. Um, my family, the last few generations, has kind of gone from, you know, Germany to England to Paraguay to the U.S. and then wandered around some more. Um However, there were places where one's forebears have been laid to rest. Mm-hmm. And those are places of significance mm-hmm. uh, that kind of can help give a sense that, you know, there are places on earth that matter and that I'm connected to whether or not I live there. And so, you know, that was a really striking part of Gracie's book. I had uh, a thing I learned. One was just really straightforward was a lot of optimism about regenerative agriculture from the Amish farmer, John Kempf, whom we interviewed a couple episodes back. Yeah. I, that was one of the best sort of new pieces of information. Like I, I have always had it in my mind, like this, this question, like, can we feed the world on, um, you know, environmentally responsible, non-destructive agriculture? And he's like, oh yeah, (laughs) 
We definitely can. Well, and I, and I know enough farmers who are just sort of by nature really skeptical about anything mm-hmm. that involves not using weed killers that mm-hmm. obviously work mm-hmm. and not using GMO seeds that obviously grow better mm-hmm. uh, and are also have, you know, I, I think there's just a cultural divide between the kinds of farmers who, you know, kind of want to do the Ben and Jerry's, uh, you know, Vermont hippie back to the land mm-hmm. thing and farmers who are just, you know, want to get this the work done. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and I thought that interview with John did such a great job of bridging mm-hmm. those gaps and getting at what is good in the mm-hmm. back to the land organic movement while taking away maybe that sort of oppositional, possibly even sometimes supercilious and snide yeah. attitude toward, you know, normal regular farmers. normal yeah. farmers while showing normal farmers a way to actually do a better job both by their own farms and by the planet and by the people who eat their food. The thing, one of the things that he said that was just like, was really stuck with me is just the responsibility, like the sense that farmers often have. And he, he made it sound like very common of, all right, the big thing that I need to do is leave the soil richer than when I found it, like leave the soil richer for the next generation. And this is, you know, um, I think there's a way to think of that in terms of the work that we do in writing and, and editing and publishing. Um, I think that there's obviously this deep connection between culture and agriculture. And I wonder whether we can think of like taking the heritage of this magazine that started a hundred years ago, this publishing house and in our generation, making that heritage even richer to pass it on to the next generation. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about kind of Christian humanism and um, what it means to build a good Christian culture. And I, I think that that comparison, that idea of enriching the soil and leaving it better for the next generation is going to be something that sticks with me. Right. And is built right into the, that word culture, yeah. right, that we're trying to do with this magazine. Well, in that spirit, I have one more final takeaway. Mm-hmm. And this has to do perhaps with the Anabaptist-Anglican divide that we sometimes like to sort of itch away at. But in the Radical Reformation tradition, uh, there is a lot of hostility to the idea of natural law, mm-hmm. um, at least in some of the rhetoric, right? And even a lot of your neo-Anabaptists, you know, as Stanley Harawas yeah. is known for kind of being not an Aquinas fan. Tell me about this. Um, well, I first want to get to my, sure. the, the thing I, I, I realized. So, well, I mean, the, the bottom line is that, you know, read scripture, don't think that you can develop with worldly philosophies. You know, mm-hmm. it's a hostility to the import, importing of too much Greek mm-hmm. philosophy into Christianity. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, you know, if the original first church in Jerusalem didn't need big doses of Aristotle to make sense of the world or to make sense of God, then possibly we don't either, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's good ways and bad ways of making this argument. Mm-hmm. And I think it has, you know, some validity. But what I learned through working with Potter Edmund Wallstein on his article, mm-hmm. which um, it's just a, a, a beautiful summation, I think, of a long tradition mm-hmm. um, of reflecting on natural law as it relates specifically to our relationship to our own bodies as part of nature. Mm-hmm. It's called Lords of Nature, a beautiful article. Again, we'll drop a link. Uh, is that all Christians, whether or not they kind of are familiar with Aquinas at all or not, um, actually live within a tradition that really depends on reading the book of nature mm-hmm. of, and it goes back of course to, to Paul himself, mm-hmm. right. Of uh, speaking the first letter of the Romans about how God's own works testify to his greatness and power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that piece and just reflecting on this whole issue, um, 
reflecting on this whole tradition of the book of nature mm-hmm. uh, in Christian tradition kind of made me appreciate more and gave me more confidence in our ability to read nature, I guess, and uh, actually draw some conclusions for our lives. You've got an Aquinas pilled. I'm so happy. Well, you know, with, with lots of qualifications, but I think, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, he's, uh, this sounds like, you know, who am I to evaluate Aquinas? I will just say that he's not everybody's friend. And I think he's, I, I kind of realized he was onto more than I, I would have thought before getting into this. Let me um push you a little bit further on that. So we talk about, um, the sort of the seeds of the gospel and the soil that they were sown in. And it, it occurred, I don't know, like one of the things that, one of my big changes after um, after conversion, because I when I first converted, I was kind of in the skeptical of re- Greek philosophy camp, actually, despite the fact that I had been a Platonist before. I, I thought maybe I had to leave all that behind mm-hmm. and just read the Bible. Um, and then I started thinking about the fact that the New Testament is written in Greek and that you can't get away from the sort of meaning of a language. And then I started thinking about like the way that um, the words, in particular, the word logos um, was used in the beginning of, you know, John's gospel at the beginning was the logos. And then I started thinking about the idea that like, there's no possible way that God is going to expect us to not know what we know about sort of the meaning of logos in Greek philosophy. And it seems to me that it seems to me at least highly, highly probable that we can think of Greek philosophy and the Greek language as being something that was soil that God prepared for the seeds of the gospel to be sown in. And it grew up because that was really good soil. So Greek philosophy is also part of the book of nature, is what we're concluding. (laughs) Well, that brings us to the end of our podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in six weeks with another series of podcasts around the launch of the next issue of Plow, which will be focused on the theme of Beyond Borders. See you then.